Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Zephaniah 1, entitled, The Dark Side. We're in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the next one down the road from Habakkuk, and we have graduated from there, and we're moving on. Zephaniah, does any, anybody here ever heard a sermon preached from Zephaniah? Anyone? Anyone done a long study of Zephaniah? Anyone can tell me a verse from Zephaniah? Most of us don't know this book. And there are other books as small, but for some reason, either because of the order or because some, some have confused it at times, you know, Zechariah, Zephaniah, they kind of start with the same thing. They kind of confuse them, make them, they're not far from each other. They're just a book, book apart from each other. Uh, kind of confuse those, kind of get swallowed up because it's small. Uh, and some of the other properties, prophecies. The other reason is because Zephaniah does is not exactly devotional type of stuff. It's kind of, not kind of, it's really hard-nosed prophecy, judgment, uh, that kind of thing. Falls in that genre in the Old Testament. And, and for that reason, it's not the typical place where you go to, you know, get your favorite memory verse and get yourself pumped up for the day. It's not the stuff you put on a note card, put it on your mirror, you know, in your bathroom. Uh, and you're going to see, you're going to see why in just a bit. So we're going we're gonna to be looking at starting this Sunday and next Sunday we're going to be looking at um, the book of Zephaniah and, and the prophecies of Zephaniah. Um, but let's learn a bit though more about this prophet before we take a, take a look at the, at the prophecies. First of all, verse 1, he kind of gives us, not kind of, he gives us this pedigree effectively. And he traces himself back not to a priest. I don't know what you think of as uh, your typical prophet. I know my mindset, because the average one out there, Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's and stuff like that. They're of a priestly background or they're of a Levitical background. So they were, they were of the tribe of the people among, of Israel who were, who were known to be men of God, if you will. And uh, whereas Zephaniah, I want you to notice where he traces his pedigree from. He's not of that tribe. It says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gadaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, expecting you to know that that was the king. He's a great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, by the way, who was an awesome king. In the days of Josiah, son of Ammon. So, so it tells us here that Zephaniah is of the bloodline of David. And so, of course, David had a numerous sons, and then they had sons, and they had sons, of course. But he's of, of that bloodline, so he's effectively a cousin. King Josiah, who's the king at this time, is, the, is of the bloodline of David, of course, because he could, couldn't be king otherwise. Zephaniah is a cousin. So he's the prophet, and, and his cousin is the king. So it's a very interesting relationship. He is a, a, a contemporary with a guy that you'll probably know way better, a guy by the name of Jeremiah, who is also a prophet. Now, he fits the standard mold. He's of the lineage of the priest. He comes from a small town called Anathoth, which is to the north, uh, a little bit north and east of there, not maybe five miles north and east of Jerusalem. Uh, he's a small-town preacher, but he has no credentials. And yet he shows up in Jerusalem and preaches for 40-some-odd chapters, or really 40-some-odd years. Zephaniah, just, just three chapters. And so uh, both of these guys are, are running together shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder prophesying in the city of Jerusalem. One of them with, with a pedigree, for sure. And you talk about an access to the king, he's the cousin of the king. And Jeremiah is this small-town preacher with, with no, uh, no, nothing, no credentials. Both of them, because I have to say this because I'm a preacher, I have to say this, so you understand. I can't prove it. But uh, both of them, I think, were responsible, I can't prove it, for Daniel. And I say that because, or I hope, I hope that there's, the preacher me wants to say that they had some kind of hand in the life and upbringing of Daniel because Daniel is in Jerusalem 
when these guys are prophesying. We think of Daniel as from Babylon on. Remember, he's 16, 17 when he lands in Babylon. And what was he before that? Well, he was living in Jerusalem. He was exiled. Uh, probably his family was killed. He was of the line of David also, Daniel was. And so these are all cousins, uh, if you speak Spanish. Some primos, all of them. So they're all, you know, I don't know if you have a bunch of cousins and stuff. All your first cousins are, are, uh, can be good, can be bad. Well, these guys were, some of them were great. Some of them weren't. So I, I would like to think that their preaching has some kind of effect on the stellar career of a young man named Daniel. Got no way to prove it. But somebody pushed him in the back, if you will, in the right direction so that when he lands in Babylon, he turns out to be this incredible uh, young man and growing up to be this incredible man who served God in that uh, literally God-forsaken place. So, so there you have Zephaniah, kind of his background, so otherwise we know nothing about him. Uh, but now his prophecy is, is, is the thing to know. And if God wanted us to know more about him, he would have told us, but he doesn't. So he gives us his prophecy, and the prophecy here is very significant, as are all the other prophecies in the Bible. Zephaniah, though, his, the bright spot, if you will, of his discourse, which is really the, the whole book is based on this, is the theme, or I should say, the, the basis of love. This is a dark book. Really dark. We're going to read the entire, almost the entire first chapter this morning, and there's nothing bright about it at all. It's nothing but um, judgment. But here in the midst of Zephaniah, we have this glorious statement. We're going to be looking at it this next Sunday. Make some incredible statements and, and uh, about God that maybe you didn't realize. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. It's talking about the reasons why they need to have hope. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So, so God sings? Yeah, he does. Wouldn't you like to hear that? Well, another reason to belong to him is that you will. If you do, then you will. God sings, and we're going to be looking at that next time, God willing, and, and uh, allowing, allowing us to see just in, in depth into what does it mean for God to be. He's a joyful God, yes. He's a singing God, yes, indeed he is. So all that, like I said, as the one bright spot in, a, in an otherwise dark little book. And uh, it's dark because of people's sins and because of the rebellion against God. And so let's consider what it says here, continuing on in verse 2, Zephaniah chapter 1. It says, and I notice, he just, I mean, right from the get-go, right out of the chute, this thing is, is bucking really bad. Here you go. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sound good or bad? So, like I said, he did, no warm-up. No, no uh, watch out, no uh, look out, here it comes, straight into it, in, in case you missed it. I will remove man and beast, he says. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'm not aware, if there is, I'm not aware of it, of more categorical judgment language in the entire Bible. Not the previous, any of the prophets, they speak some strong words. Not the book of Revelation, we always think of that one being a book of judgment, and it indeed is. But it is not as, even it is not as categorical as every last person 
every last animal, which we just read. Verse 4. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off. So he says, listen, in reference to the fact that I'm wiping the earth clean, I'm going to be dealing with you, my people. I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops of the host of heaven, idol worshipers, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, which is this horrible, uh, grotesque God, and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him, be silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord, you might want to underline that phrase right there, because that phrase is it if you will, for this book, for the book of Zephaniah, that is. That is it. I'm going to tell you why in just a second. For the day of the Lord is near. Maybe you'll figure it out why before we're done. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his gifts. And it will go on, it goes on to say, then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. And it goes on from there. Skip down with me to verse 12. And it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. What's he looking for? And I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. By the way, that's the position of a, of a um, I can't think of the word, I just lost it in my head. A person that believes in God but doesn't believe God's going to do anything. Um, what is it? Agnostic, there you go, thank you. Couldn't come up with it, I don't know what happened. That's the position of the Agnostic. Uh, they don't believe God's going to do anything. They believe that God exists, but they don't believe God does anything. He just turns, winds it up like a clock and lets it run. Well, God says, I'm going to be searching for people that think that way, and I'm going to remove them, he says. E. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will, be, they will build houses but not inhabit them, plant vineyards but not drink their wine. Near is the day of the Lord. There you go, underline that. Day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. How many times has he got to say that? Well, he's going to keep on saying it. it. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, the day of wrath is that day, he says. The day of trouble and distress, the day of destruction and desolation, the day of darkness and gloom, the day of clouds and thick darkness, the day of trumpet and battle and cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring, on, bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured. I might not underline that categorically. All of it. In the fire of his, either God doesn't know what he's talking about or he needs a vocabulary lesson or it's actually what he says. In the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all, there you have again, all the inhabitants of the earth. I, I'm not familiar, I'm not aware of a more categorical statement of judgment in the entire Bible. Zephaniah corners the market when it comes to that. I should say God through him. He absolutely corners Maga. There are places in the scriptures that require us to say, I guess you could say, that God's going to remove all animals and all people from the earth because it tells us in the New Testament He's going to behold a new heavens and a new earth. So in order, in order to get a new one, you've got to get rid of the old one, right? So that follows, doesn't it? It does follow. You do follow that, but you don't hear this, this uh, if you will, how, how you get there. Uh, how do we sweep it clean before we actually make it new uh, sort of thing here. So, 
So, wow, uh, like I said, this is, a, this is a prophecy based on love, but the day of the Lord is actually the theme of it. And Zephaniah uses this, this, this phrase more often than any other biblical writer. The Old Testament, the phrase, the day of the Lord, the reason why I had you underline it, shows up 30 some odd times in the Old Testament, 19 of those times in this little book. So can you get his point? Because he's making a point. It's not a broad generalization. He's aiming, isn't he? And firing and hitting exactly what he's aiming at. The day of the Lord, listen, is a day when God fixes all that's broken. And what is broken? All of it. All of it is. So for him to fix it, he's got to go. He's got to get rid of all of it, right? And like I said, we can follow the reasoning, can we not? It's a day that he fixes all that's broken, rights, all that's wrong. What is right? Almost none of it, right? We, we think it is, but not in God's way of categorizing things. All that's right removes creation from all that is corrupt and evil. What is corrupt and evil in this world? Everything is. Everything. Obviously, the animals too, but not because of anything they've done, but because of what we've done. I mean, we're like this leprous disease on the planet that's corrupted everything. Everything's been messed up because of our decision to follow a dark Lord, to follow uh, sin and follow our own hearts. And, and God is going to put an end to it. Honestly, from uh, not being a part of, I can't be judgmental at all because obviously the, the judgment is spoken to all of us. But praise God that he is going to fix it. He's going he's to make it right. He is going to make it right. It's not going to be just a simple oh, well, let's just arrange a few things here and let's straighten out a few people. No, it's going to be a clean sweep. A complete new place is where we're headed to here. New bodies, new earth, new everything. If we have faith in him and we're trusting him and we trusted his son Jesus, it's going to be true for us. God does what he wants, does he not? There was a little boy who um, was disobedient, so he found himself with his nose stuck in a corner. Anybody ever stood in a corner? I know some of the young people anymore. No one stands kids in the corner anymore. Your mom does. I know your mom. He raised his hand. He's being honest. Anybody stood in a corner when you were raised? I didn't see. In front of the class. Yeah, man, that'll fix you. It's like, beat me all day, but don't make me stand in front of the class with my nose in the corner kind of thing. It worked. I think it only happened one time to me. And uh, I, that, mm, I'm not doing that anymore. Anyway, this little boy stood in the corner by his mom in the corner of the kitchen as she's working because he was doing whatever she told him not to. And um, when the discipline was over, he sat down at the kitchen table and he asked his mom, he said, Mom, can God do anything that he wants? She said, yes, sir, he sure can. He said, well, then he must not have a mom and dad then. <laughs> nope. Nope, he does not. God does exactly what he wants. And listen, if he wants, if he wanted, I mean, this is the book of judgment, right? If he wanted to judge us, then he would have done it. If he wanted to, if that was the real program, if that what he's really out to do, 
From the beginning, he decides, along with the other two people of the Trinity, persons of the Trinity, that he's going to move against this world in judgment. He would have already done it. If we were going to be thrown into hell already, it would have already happened. We were going to lose our salvation, we would have already lost it. If God was intent in judging us, if that was his real move, then he would have done it. Why hasn't he done it? Not, not because he can't and not because he hasn't told us that he will. Isn't that right? Why hasn't he done it? Because that's not what he wants. He's doing what he wants. He's extending mercy and grace to us. He's extending love to us. Like I said, the, the, really, the bottom line of this book is not judgment. It's love. He's scaring us. He's warning us. He's telling us, by the way, these are not uh, empty words. It is going to go the way this says. It is going to conclude that way. It's not like, okay, this is a road that we can get off of and humanity can be redone. No, no, we're headed there. But for the individual, he offers up these words. Listen, as, as Matthew Henry, commentator, said, these words are not meant to scare you out of your wits. These words are meant to scare you out of your sins. That's what he wants. That's what he really, you want to know what, what does God want? That's what God wants. Scaring you out of your sins and to him, the redeemer, so that he can forgive you, so that he can cleanse you, so that he can fix you, so that he can rebirth you and make you right. That's the heart of God. And if it was any other heart, listen, he would have already done it. If his bent was to judge, well then why not just judge, right? Why even tell us? Why not spring it on us? Why, why not move unilaterally and preemptively with no warning if he was bent on judgment? Because he's not bent on judgment. The signs aren't hard to read if you're willing to read. He, he tells us this because he loves us. Like I said, not meant to scare us out of our wits, but to scare us out of our sins. The venerable preacher J. Vernon McGee describes what he calls the dark side of God's love. Ever heard of that? There is a dark side to God's love. What does that mean? It means it can be really dark over there. It means you can be really feeling lost over there. It also means that uh, without, without some real regimented keeping your mind clear, you're going to think God's against you over there. But in fact, he does love you. He tells this story, J. Vernon McGee relates this story that demonstrates the dark side of the love. He, he says it this way. He says, in the middle of the night one night, there was a child who lay restless on her bed. And she awoke to see a dark figure standing over her. When she saw his face, she screamed out in terror. And her mom's come running into the room and comforts her in her arms. And the man that was standing over her leaves the room and calls someone and speaks in muffled tones, apparently an accomplice. Hangs up the phone, comes back into the room and tears the little girl away from his mom rushes with her out the door, down the stairs, out to a car, throws her in the car. They drive madly, or he drives madly through the city, uh, making his way all the way to this very sinister-looking building. He slams the brakes on, gets out of the car, grabs the little girl, practically drags her in there, hands her over to someone she's never seen before, and that person takes her into this room, which is lit up. And in that room are people wearing masks. The end of the story is, or the, I should say the end of that part of the story is, is that she lays seemingly dead 
and they are taking a long knife and plunging it into her vitals. Sounds like Alfred Hitchcock's kind of stuff, right? Well, it's not. It's a true story, actually. She said, this is J. Vernon McGee. He says, it's a tender, it's a story of the tender act of love. He says, that little girl has a severe abdominal condition. The doctors warned her parents, keep an eye on her. If her condition changes at all, she could be, it could be terminal very quick. So her father is the one that stands over her bed all night long watching. And when he sees her condition changes, he takes her quick. He tears her from his mom's arms. He takes her to, to the doctor. He submits her to the surgeon's knife because there was a, only way he could rescue her. Only way he could save her. And uh, do you think that little girl understood that? That was a bad night for her, wasn't it? What was that dad doing for her? The best thing. The best thing, the only way. The only way to rescue her from this disease that could be terminal, easily terminal was to do the kind of things that he did for her. And crying and screaming and fighting all the way, yep, because, because why? Because kids don't always understand. Listen, the kids of God, the kids of God, got any of them here? I'm one. Don't always understand. They're not gonna. And God doesn't always explain himself because kids don't always get it. They don't always understand. They don't always get it. The, the, the father... The father's love for this little girl was just as much on that dark night as he gave her to the surgeon's knife as it was the next day when he brought her candies and flowers. It's just the same love. Just a dark side of love. And that's what happens in love, isn't it? Real love. Real love has a dark side that will do whatever it takes for the one that he loves. Whatever it takes. Whatever is necessary, there is a dark side to the love of God in which he deals with us, listen, according to our needs. Not according to our prayers or our wants, but according to our needs. And his love is the same whether we're getting everything that we want or nothing that we want. His love, is, it's the same love. It's the same one. The great physician, listen, will put his child on the operating table to remove the cancerous sin, growth of sin. Will he not? He will. Some of you are here experiencing the dark side of God's love. Maybe all of us here to a certain degree, we have questions of why and for what. And I don't see how this is working. And some of us here, it maybe it's all dark for you. Listen, I want to communicate to you from the book of Zephaniah the love of of God who's trying to rescue you. The love of God who's reaching out to you, who loves you even if it's dark, and no, he does not explain it himself, but he has your best interest at heart. He loves us in the same whether we're coming under the knife or whether we're walking in the light of his blessings. He loves us the same. Charles Haddon Spurgeon tells the story of a particular person in his church. He noticed it was going out to see him at his farm. On top of his uh, barn, he noticed his weather vane, a typical rooster weather vane or whatever. But on the rooster was this sign painted that says, God is love. And of course, you know, weather vanes do. Every time the wind blows, it spins. So it was turning with the wind, and he saw that up there, and he goes inside the man's house. He says, what do you mean by that? So what are you talking about? So I'm talking about the weather vane. It says up on that weather vane, God is love. Or do you mean to say that God's love is changeable like the wind? He says, no, no, not at all. 
That's not what I meant at all. He says, what I meant by it is, is that no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. He says, oh, yeah, he says, I agree with that for sure. How's the wind blowing today in your life? It doesn't always blow the way you want it to, does it? Sometimes we get a nice warm breeze, if you will, out of the south, and sometimes, sometimes it's cold and bitter, isn't it? How's the wind blowing? You need to know this. God is always love. God is always love. He will move. He will always move for what his child needs, whether she understands it or not, whether she gets it or not, whether she agrees with it or not, whether it agrees with all the prayers or not. God will always do that because he knows what's best for us. He will always move in love. He comes as a warning. Like I said, it's like a... Uh, blowing us away here without warning here in Zephaniah. Why? Because he doesn't want us to get what this is. He's telling us about the disease so that we'll run to him for the cure, right? That's exactly right. That's the way he runs it. Today we're going to be observing here in just a moment a beautiful thing called the Lord's Supper or communion, which speaks to us about, among other things, the dark side of God's love. How desperately did God want you to be one of his? So desperate that he planned from all eternity to rescue you by sending his son to die in your place. You think it was, dark? You think it was a bright day for Jesus when he died? No, it was very dark. Jesus knows there is a very dark side. There are things when you, just, you have to do certain things and there's no other options. And so he moved even though darkly, if you will, by laying his son down for us, these broken pieces representing the body of Christ that was broken for us, and this juice representing the blood of Christ that was shed for us. Why was this blood shed? Why make an issue out of it? Because it's the only remedy for sin. The person that God has sacrificed his son, listen, for you, to rescue you. Is God, will, is God willing to do whatever it takes to get to you? Yeah, Really? He really is. He cares about you, your deepest needs. We were studying in Sunday school class earlier uh, the men that came and lowered their friend down through the roof tiles because they couldn't get to Jesus coming into the house. And Jesus, the man, of course, is crippled. He's laying on a pallet, can't even walk. And Jesus, the first thing he says when the man comes down in front of him, he says, your sins, my friend, your sins are forgiven. It's like, well, that's really nice, but we actually brought him here to be healed. Jesus like, you don't understand. You understand the real need of this man, the real need of all of us, is for our sins to be forgiven, our sins to be healed. Physical, yeah, that's great. That's a lesser prayer request as far as God's concerned. He will move on behalf of his children by what they need. God has moved for us on, on, by, by what we need. He's provided for us his son Jesus. These elements are going to be here for us to be reminded of those things. I want to ask you, if you would, please... Bow your heads and close your eyes as we contemplate the things that God has said to us. I wonder today, are you find yourself, do you find yourself in a dark place? You find yourself having, as we talked to the kids earlier, a bad day. Well, God doesn't love you any more or any less on those days. Maybe even more. You could argue his love. Because he's willing to do, even though it breaks his heart, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to make his child better.
God, I thank you that you love us that much. I thank you, God, that you aren't just all flowers and candy, that you do what it takes. You put us under the surgery of your spirit, the surgery of your word to change us, the surgery of circumstances to put us on our knees because that's what we really need. God, I pray that you would help us even though we don't understand, we may find ourselves in a very dark place. That we would trust your love, we would trust your character. You're loving us. You care for us. I pray that instead of turning away from you, Lord, we would turn to you and say, God, God, I trust you. God, help me to understand, but even if I don't understand, help me to have peace with what I'm going through. I thank you that you enable us to do that. I thank you that you've come and you've done all that it takes to bring us to yourself. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.